Hi, good morning. I am Kendall Ludwig, and I am preaching on the Genesee Hotel suicide. There it is. It's October 18th, 2014. I'm running the last leg in the team relay in the Baltimore Running Festival. I'm about five miles into my 7.4 mile run, and I've hit my wall. If you've never heard this expression before, it's usually something that happens to marathoners when they reach that point where every fiber in their being, both physically and mentally, is telling them to stop. So I'm running slightly uphill over this bridge, and I so want to stop. But I also know myself, and I know that if I switch to walking or take a three-minute breather, I won't want to start again, and I won't finish this race. 7.4 miles is a crazy long run for someone like me, and the negative thoughts start flowing. You see, I am not a natural runner. When I began running in 2009, I couldn't run a quarter mile without stopping. I've suffered, suffered Achilles and heel injuries. I've taken a couple very bad falls. Ouch. Uh, I don't get runner's highs. I don't even want to try that icky-looking goo stuff that those marathoners use. Running is something that does not come naturally or easy to me, but I refuse to give up trying. So anyway, in that moment, on that bridge, I began saying the Lord's Prayer as I ran. It's the only thing I could think of to do. Once, then again, then basically chanted it for the next five minutes until I started feeling better. Two miles later, I ran past the Babe Ruth statue and over the finish line, overwhelmed with pride and gratefulness. God alone had gotten me over my wall. It's May 8th, 1942. Mary Miller, a divorcee who is living with her sister, checks into the Genesee Hotel in Buffalo, New York. No one knew she was there. She had told her sister that she was going to visit relatives in Indiana. After checking into the hotel, Mary Miller proceeds to lock herself into the women's bathroom and creep out onto the ledge. Meanwhile, a photographer for the Buffalo Courier Express, I. Russell Sorge, is out on another assignment. He decides to take a different route back to the office. A few minutes later, a police car speeds by, and Sorge, interest peaked, begins to follow him. He finds Miss Miller on this eighth-story window ledge and gets his camera ready. And here's what he said. I snatched my camera from the car and took two quick shots as Miller seemed to hesitate. As quickly as possible, I shoved the exposed phone back in the case and reached for a fresh, fresh holder. I no sooner had pulled the slide out and got set for another shot than she waved to the crowd below and pushed herself into space. Screams and shouts burst from the horrified onlookers as her body plummeted towards the street. I took a firm grip on myself, waited until the woman passed by the second or third story, and then shot. And that's how this incredible photograph, I have the slide thing. one that has haunted and fascinated me for some time, came to be. The composition is strikingly beautiful. Doing something. Okay. 
<laughs> the composition is strikingly beautiful, as is the serene expression on Mary Miller's face. It's kind of hard to see in this photograph, but she looks kind of like a relaxed angel. She looks like she's falling into a giant mountain of pillows instead of hard pavement. Then there are all the little details about this photograph, like the policeman pushing the individual back inside the hotel, or the man sitting in the coffee shop, completely oblivious to what's happening right outside his window. It's such a little gem of an image, and yet, admittedly, a rather unusual choice given our sermon series. It's my junior year of college, sometime in 2002. My boyfriend, Mark, is working on an interactive art project incorporating this image of the Genesee Hotel suicide. My understanding of mental illness and suicide at this point is fairly limited, and I am inclined to write suicide off as a completely selfish act or comparable to someone giving God the middle finger. In my mind, it is so black and white. Yet something about this image is profoundly bothering me, How could Mary Miller seem so peaceful about jumping to her death? Or what does it say about me that I would find such a disturbing image so incredibly beautiful? I find myself wrestling through many issues of faith, and Mark's endless questions are not helping. Who really was saved, and did being saved require a particular prayer? Why couldn't I find a Christian community where I could be my broken, imperfect self without fear of judgment or shame? Why did some of the dearest people in my life, people who had a relationship with God, struggle with such horrible things like mental illness? With 9-11 in the forefront of everyone's mind, how do we live in peace that transcends understanding? It's the third week of November, 2009. And as girly as I might be, this is the first time I have ever full-out sobbed in my bathtub. My stomach is in knots, and my heart is racing, a feeling I have now dealt with for about four days on and off. There's a beautiful and perfectly healthy baby girl sleeping peacefully downstairs in Mark's arms. I should be singing the Lord's praises day and night with a permanent smile on my face. Look at this gift we've been given. And yet my mind is consumed with thoughts like, I'll never have a normal life again. And will all my friends forget about me? Am I just a mom now? Will I lose what makes me, me? I know that these thoughts are not rational, but I cannot stop. Fast forward to today, June 28, 2015. In my 33 years of life, I have seen more individuals I love struggle with mental illness than any other affliction combined. I have seen friends and family who suffer from an everyday constant sadness that follows them around like a thick cloud. And those who have or who are experiencing the depths of despair... And no, I have never been diagnosed with depression or anxiety, but I often say I've danced around these illnesses, like my brief postpartum anxiety following Margot's birth. I've gotten close enough to see a glimpse of what that reality is like, and it's only stood to increase my compassion. And yet, mental illness seems to be a topic that is mostly not discussed in a Christian setting. 
I've noticed that the majority of these individuals I love that struggle are followers of Christ, and yet they have not shared this illness with many people outside their immediate family and closest friends. Fellow church members, even in their small groups, house churches, or Bible studies, may have no idea because these individuals have worked very hard to keep this illness private. And I wanted to know why. I decided to seek a professional opinion about all this. So I called up our old pal, Dr. Sean Hales, to learn more about his story and process. Sean treats patients suffering from depression, and a vast majority of his patients are believers. I discovered that Sean was originally intending to go into ministry, but after taking some advice from his pastor, he took a couple psychology courses in college, and Sean discovered his calling. By the time he finished college, he didn't want to go into seminary. He got his graduate degree in psychology, but continued studying theology as well. Sean saw this life path as a way to help other Christians. A large part of his job is simply listening without judgment, creating a safe place where one can be totally honest. When we spoke about how the church perceives mental illness, Sean agreed with me that it's often the opposite of the type of environment that he's actually trying to create. The inclination of the suffering believer is to put on a smile and pretend like everything is fine. Sean pointed out various faith leaders over the past several decades that have championed unhelpful, even dangerous ideas, such as all mental illnesses either indicate either demon possession or lack of faith, something that can be fixed if one just spends a little more time in prayer or scripture. Which led me to ask him about scripture and how it fits into this whole conversation. And he wisely pointed me to Jesus and how he healed. Let's take a look together at Mark 5 and the story of the demon-possessed man. This is from the New King James Version. They came out to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met a man out him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. No one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding near there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. 
So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told him how it had happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. My point today in reading this passage is not to discuss mental illness or demon possession or whether demon possession still exists. That is a can of worms. That is a whole other sermon. But I want us to look at Jesus' instructions to this man post-healing. Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. I do not think Jesus needed an ego boost here, uh, nor was he looking to become more famous in the eyes of this man's friends, but Jesus is about healing holistically. He can see what a person truly needs. Ending the immediate affliction is only the first part of the healing. Jesus knows that this man is in desperate need of community to be fully restored, and more importantly, to go out and begin living the real life God has for him. After speaking to Sean, I turned to several people that are very near and dear to me to ask them about their story around depression, their faith, and the church. Although each story was very unique, as depression and how each person experiences can vary greatly, I found several common themes. One. Those that suffer from depression often feel misunderstood. Some folks will begin to suffer from depression following a traumatic event, but often there is no trigger. It is an illness and a rather tricky one to treat. There is no quick fix and can be a lifelong struggle. Most everyone I talk to has been on the receiving end of a hurtful comment or many hurtful comments about how their depression can be fixed. Depression affects every aspect of life. Although many who struggle are great at putting on a happy face, most of them struggle with things we all do and take for granted every day. Things like getting out of bed, getting dressed, making decisions, making plans to see friends, and so on. Those who suffer from depression often see the benefit of their faith, but doubt and lies creep in. So I think this is something I can greatly relate to as you might remember from my race and postpartum stories, there have been countless times in my life where I have struggled with what I call negative self-talk, or you can also call it a negative inner monologue. Anytime you begin mentally beating yourself up over a mistake or convincing yourself that you're about to fail or trying to anticipate when the next bad thing will happen, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And every single person on the planet has done this at some point. Um, Rob Bell has a new podcast, for those of you who do the podcast thing, and back in March, he recorded an excellent talk on this very topic that I highly recommend. It was called Changing the Tapes. 
But an individual who is suffering from depression is either A, being constantly bombarded with these thoughts, or B, is unable to counter these thoughts with positive ones. Worse still, they often hear lies about the state of their soul and wonder if God still loves them or if he has abandoned them. Which leads me to my next point. They can understand why someone would end his or her own life. Just about every person I spoke with assured me that while they themselves are not considering suicide, when they have found themselves in the lowest valleys, it's tempting to think that life, their family and friends, would be better off without them. Kind of like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. When they find themselves in the lowest valleys, it can be excruciating to think about continuing to endure that pain for even one more day. Perhaps this is why Mary Miller looked so serene as she fell. In her mind, she was ending the pain. This is why I began the sermon today with running a race. Writers of scripture often compare a life of faith to running a race. There will be times when each of us will hit our wall. Regardless of the trial, we will all have struggles to overcome. And persevering through these struggles is so incredibly important. It's often when God does his best work in us. If we can only endure. In Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, it is so easy to grow weary from life, isn't it? When we at New Hope are about to take communion and we hear the words, even still, come Lord Jesus, I find myself responding, yes, come already. The truth is, I don't often want to endure. I want to be at the finish line. I want to witness the end of the story where God puts all things to rights. And while longing for that finish line is by no means a bad thing, for as we know, this is not our true home, if we do this, we too often miss the goodness that God is doing in us right here, right now. Those that suffer from depression are in desperate need of authentic community. Just like the man Jesus healed, every person I spoke with admitted how important it is to be honest with others and deepen relationships, even with a few select people in their lives. Although depression lends itself to isolation and social withdrawal, being with others is one of the most powerful tools to fight the disease. My last question to Sean was this. If you could say something about depression to the church at large, what would it be? Sean said, If you're depressed, share your struggles with a friend and ask questions. Once you have gotten help and you have a battle story and you feel so bold, share it with a larger community. 
it could greatly help someone else who is suffering. And to those who have a friend or family member who is suffering, any act of community is helpful, even a simple cup of coffee or a note in the mail. At the end of the day, we all need authentic community. We cannot persevere through life alone. And yet our ability to be in this honest fellowship is broken because we are broken. During this interview process, I heard several stories of how game-changing and uplifting community can be, but I also heard a few stories of how community fell short of what was needed. In light of this, we need grace. Grace from God to become better brothers and sisters, but also grace with one another and trust that, through love, God has given us the ability to offer one another hope and peace. So please read aloud once more this first part of Hebrews 12 with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easy entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing the film of Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Let us pray. Lord, almighty creator of all things, seen and unseen, we thank you that you did not place us in this life alone, but gave us community. Help us continue to mold New Hope Community Church into a place of authentic community and selfless love. Be with those who are struggling with darkness, those in despair, those who have lost hope, let us minister to our brothers and sisters with your light, your joy, and your hope. We ask all these things in your holy name. Amen.